man, this, this dude could fly and you could see it coming in. Like just, he was a, he was a Ferrari. Like his nervous system was just tuned up. He was going to move. But the problem is, I mean, he looked like Sonic the Hedgehog when he went to run, like his feet were behind him. He's spinning his wheels to go anywhere. Um, and he's so extended that he would come in and say like, I can't run because my calves feel like somebody's taking a blowtorch to them. And my back feels like it's just lit up. And so, you know, I couldn't even train this guy until we addressed some semblance of sagittal plane control. That was Coach Justin Moore speaking on posture, specifically sagittal plane competency and its impact on performance training. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, gym aware, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none, Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 124 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. This one is all about speed training, posture, and athletic asymmetry. If you've ever asked the questions, why does the fastest man in the world have a very asymmetrical stride? Why do athletes often veer off to the right when they're coming out of the blocks or, or coming off um, a three-point stance for a combine? Or when do we, we want to make a big deal of when, a, when an athlete may have a postural issue or something that may need to be uh, have time corrected? Um, this is the show for you. We have back Justin Moore. He is the Performance Education Coordinator at Parabolic Performance and Rehab, and he also works with their NFL Combine athletes. Justin made his first appearance in episode 78, where he took us on a deep dive into the squat and deadlift and how to get the most out of those lifts based off of principles from the Postural Restoration Institute. That episode honestly floored me just because I'm a guy who the more I deadlift and Olympic lift and even squat to an extent, bilateral squat at least, the more my lower back and back in general gets really strong and my right quad. <laughs> and uh, for once, I it really, the wheel started to turn and, and I started to figure out some of the reasons why that was the case and how I could get a more balanced effect for my lifts, particularly on my hamstrings, which have always been lacking. And within the Postural Restoration Institute, and you look at all these different activities in the scope of training and human performance, you can see how things can hit us differently, so to speak, from a training effect. And uh, lifting is awesome, but squatting and deadlifting is not sprinting. And Justin, it's easy to peg people sometimes, I think, as like, 
a strength guy or a postural restoration guy, a jump guy, a speed guy, a, a agility guy or whatever. Um, Justin has a tremendous holistic knowledge in the field. He has an awesome tribe of mentors and he's one of the brightest young strength coaches. Uh, I always feel like, you know, if I keep going with this podcast quick enough, maybe I can do my own 30 under 30, but Justin's brilliant and I'm really excited to have him back. So uh, we're going to get into the NFL combine, the speed training that he's done, some things he's learned from this last season of combine training, as well as some of the incredible results that he got. I mean, and again, that's just the mark of a good coach is you may have got great results, but how can we keep pushing this thing forward? How can we do even better? How can we maybe reach an athlete that we felt like could have had a little bit of experience? And it's really good to see. And it's really cool to see Justin's insights uh, on that last combine training season. And so getting into the posture and speed end of things, we're going to talk about one, how ribcage and thorax position affects sprinting speed and the ability to express that. But Justin has some really awesome viewpoints on when to actually utilize PRI or corrective base work if you're seeing something wrong in an athlete and kind of having this triage system that is just, again, it's like the more great minds I talk to about this, the more things start to make sense to me on finding that linchpin that really unlocks the whole thing before you just put someone on the table or the wall or whatever and say, I'm going to fix you. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. He's going to talk about left and right leg differences in sprinting according to PRI principles. And he has an awesome bit on the importance of asymmetry in athletic movement. Finally, Justin's going to wrap it up with talking about impingement versus instability and how movement strategy, running, lifting, how impingement and instability manifests itself in that. And then he's also going to talk about the performance health dichotomy a little bit. Um, think of it like this way is if you are going to squat a ton of weight under pressure, you're probably going to arch your back hard and use your extensor muscles for all you got. Is that the healthiest thing to do in the world? Probably not. Uh, but and then how does that fit into sprinting, obviously, especially like linear sprinting versus team sports, change of direction, how, when, and where? These are all important questions. Justin gets to it, and this is a great episode. So that being said, let's get on to episode 124 with Coach Justin Moore. I heard you're running a half marathon, you said. Are you nuts? Are you going to the dark side? What's going on with that? <laughs> yeah, I, I am running a half marathon. So as we're speaking today, um, I'm running the Philly half marathon, which is in a week, actually. Um, and <laughs> it came out of nowhere. So uh, my girlfriend has run a lot of half marathons. She likes doing that. But because of like work, she's kind of gotten in a little bit of a rut with her you know, physical activity. So you know, my mind, I was like, Hey, you know, you, you sign up for a half marathon, you train for it and I'll support you. I'll run with you. And <laughs> instead of getting an appreciative response at the beginning, I got kind of a, you're going to run a half marathon. You're too big and slow. <laughs> like you won't be able to run it. You'll be so slow. And so that, you know, I tend to, uh, to respond really well to people saying that I can't do things. So I responded with that by training for the last four months. And, uh, and I'm ready to rock. So I, I'm not. I'm certainly not um, going over to the the dark side of take of having running taking over my life. But at the same time, honestly, it's been a really good learning experience, um, and I've kind of enjoyed it. So having to like program for something different, and then being able to put that programming on display in a performance again that I haven't competed since you know my weightlifting days, um, and since college football, 
you know, it's cool. You know, there's there's a day where you got to show up and you got to see if your programming worked and if all your your investment came out on the other end into performance. So you're saying you're not skinny fat right now? Then that, is that is that a myth? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not skinny fat, and I have definitely maintained uh, a lot of strength, and the weightlifting has always been in there. Uh, I've still been lifting three like hard three times a week. I've lost some muscle mass for sure, uh, but I'm still sitting around 230 pounds. Uh, my front squat has actually gone up the Dang. biggest hit is is actually on the bench press um, my upper body lifts have have struggled to stay where they were um, which is surprising to me i figured my legs would be dead from running four days a week but um, legs are legs are still there upper body's a little down but you know once it's over I'll, I'll get back to it so you're saying that um arnold pump and run in columbus where you bench press your body weight however many times they run a 5k you wouldn't do very good at that right now <laughs> right now i would struggle with it for sure <laughs> But I'd, you know, I'd put up a good fight and a good show, but it wouldn't be my best. No, I, I would struggle with that big time. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I tell you, what, I actually like um, outside of Achilles issues over the the last few years. Um, I actually liked endurance running. It's just I, I like you, you know, you always get to give up something, right? Like, and I found that there's a summer, one summer, where I'm like, you know what? I've been training for a really long time for jumping and sprinting. I'm just gonna do a lot of like running and trail running and. It, I really enjoyed it, but then I, I remember one day I went to jump and try to touch the rim, and I felt like my legs were like just bricks, like two bricks. Yep. <laughs> I was like, "Well, this is crazy." Okay, this is enough of this. I'm gonna go back. But I, I really, what I, I, I love going out for a good run. So, um, I think it's it's good it's good for men it's good for your mental clarity as well. Like uh, I'm out there sometimes, and and some of the thoughts that I've really been struggling with, or some things that I've been trying to put together. They just co they come together really well, and and all of a sudden I'm like writing a post or writing an article in my head or answering a question that I've had trouble with, and it's like, you know, there's there's a lot of positive benefits to aerobic exercise, especially cyclical aerobic exercise, and I think uh, to an extent some of the things that have been out there in the industry about like oh well you don't need to do distance running or cyclical work like you can just do these circuits, um, and I think to an extent that. You know that can be true, but there are some benefits that we might be missing um, from getting out in nature a little bit, from being able to run and do a cyclical activity. Um, in addition to you know the the health benefits, like my resting heart rate is somewhere in the like 39 to 40 range right now, um, and I think we need parity in our training, right? If we're always chasing max strength and hypertrophy and speed and power, you know I think there are times a year where we can go after other things. So it's it's been a good experience. Not. I couldn't agree more. I, I at least especially too. Well, with you were saying like the idea thing, the cyclical, like it putting you in flow state. I mean, the workout time is always my greatest idea source, uh, regardless of what I'm doing. But I feel like it could be amplified by especially like you know a run in nature or something like that. And but there's like, well, how do you write your idea down? You you have like Google Glass and you like say like the ideas <laughs> you're running. Does that defeat the point? I don't know. So I'm just kind of going off on a rabbit trail. But I like what Dan John said, and uh, I think it might have been easy strength, like a like a strength athlete needs to do endurance work about as much as an endurance athlete needs to do strength work. Not a lot, but there's there's there is that element there. So yep. um, I think it's cool stuff. Totally, man. Uh, so I know uh, you guys had a little combine season coming up, or <laughs> not coming. Well, it is coming up, but you you had one last spring, and uh, we were talking about that a little bit before we started. Uh, how did that go, and, and what were some things you, you implemented that were new and some things you took away from that? Yeah, so uh, it, it's amazing that you you know just brought that up because uh, it is a month away where we're going to start getting guys coming in, and it feels like we just ended. Um, it went well. It went really well. Uh, we had a small class, um, a lot of guys who were 
you know, fringe guys. And so I enjoyed working with that type of athlete. Um, I can identify with that type of athlete as coming from, you know, D3. And, you know, I, I was always the guy who was willing to put in the work, but I didn't have as much talent as other guys. And, and that's OK. So as a coach, you enjoy doing that. Um, we saw a lot of really good progress. Like we saw guys improving 40 times, improving 510 five times, um, improving three cone times, getting their bench press up. Like those numbers all went up. And I mean, some of the numbers were just crazy. Like three cone and shuttle, we were taking uh, half a second off of guys' times. And, and you know, the 40, we were taking 0. 0.3, 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5 off of guys' times. And so um, I think this year, I really feel like I came into my own a little bit from a, um, a technical perspective, from a sprinting perspective, um, as well as the change of direction drills. Um, when I first learned about these combine type drills and started getting involved in them, the coach who was running it and who had the connections and who taught me these things, um, let me put it this way, he tended to violate physics with a lot of the things that he was teaching. But I was a young coach and I didn't know any better. So I just went along with it. And over the years, it became very obvious. Um, and this was something that happened when Cody and I were working together on the combine project a couple years ago. We realized we were actively making guys slower. Um, and that was a very it was a very potent moment in my coaching career uh, because I, I felt like I was just doing a massive disservice. So this year, I felt like I was more confident than ever in the things I was teaching. Um, and I have, honestly, I have guys like Lee Taft and, and John Hudak, who was a, a student of Lee Taft's, um, as well as just all of the other sprint coaches out there who were putting out great information to thank for that. But I, I felt really confident in it, and the numbers reflected that. Um, so that was really good, and I was, I was very happy about that. Some things that I think I would improve on next time um, and yeah, I mean, a lot of guys killed their pro days. Like the, the numbers were fantastic. Not a lot of guys stuck on rosters. And, and that's another thing as a coach of these combine things, you have to kind of, you have to realize you can only control so much, right? You can get the guys 40 time grade and shuttle and three cone are killing it. Their angles are excellent. Um, they understand how to get out of a cut and load and unload, but they got to be able to play football at a really high level. And, and sometimes you, you know, you can't control that. So uh, for these guys though, you know, there were a couple things that kind of happened that I would like that I've been reevaluating throughout the year. And I think my inclusion of isometrics, uh, my inclusion of some of the flywheel training and just in general, placing too much stress on the athletes in the weight room still, I think, detracted a little bit from our ability to utilize uh, frequency in training on the field and in the plyometric or jumping realm of things. And I think that was really illuminated for me in a conversation I had with Aaron Davis where he was talking, we were, I was asking him about hypertrophy, which I think we'll get to later. So I won't go off on that. Uh, but he was basically saying like a lot of people push the envelope in the name of hypertrophy in this case, but they do so in a way that accumulates so much fatigue that you can never use frequency. People can only train two, three times a week, maybe four at most. And he's like, if I accumulate more volume because I can use more frequency, because I'm not always tapping people out, and in his case, he's using moxie monitors to measure oxygen, to measure oxygen recovery, um, and he's doing a lot of other things as well that allows him to control the quality of the reps and to know when to shut it down. 
I think if we if I take that same mindset to my combine process, I think the quality of on field reps becomes even higher and I can then include more volume and more frequency with those reps. And I think some of what we were doing in the weight room is still in the name of, you know, these guys are just used to lifting heavy weights. And so we're going to lift heavy weights because heavy weights support jumping and running. And uh, I think the more I get into this, more I realize in some cases that's just not the case. And we would probably benefit more from teaching guys to move uh, submaximal loads with maximal intent somewhere along the force velocity curve that fits their needs. So being able to use velocity based training a little bit more um, and then also just knowing knowing when and knowing how to pull back the volume in the weight room again to really encourage more frequency because it's a powerful um, driver of adaptation, especially in high neural stuff like jumping and sprinting and changing directions. But uh, I think, you know, we did a, we keep getting better every year at what we're doing. But every year I'm always looking for a way that I can improve uh, kind of my system. And I think going into this year, that's going to be a big goal of mine is, is taking myself out of the weight room a little bit more, only giving what they absolutely need to support what they're doing on the field and, you know, help to improve resiliency and injury prevention. But then putting the focus where it needs to be. Um, and, and I think the big thing that a lot of great coaches say is cut out the fluff, right? It, just get rid of the stuff that doesn't need to be there. Keep what is essential. And that's something that in my young coaching journey, I'm, I'm working to do more of. Yeah, man. I, hey, I, I love how much you're continually, like, even though you had an awesome season, right? You're still turning the wheels and saying, what can I do better? And I mean, that's just something that serving our athletes in that way. So much respect for that. I, as you talk about the, the, the max intensity and the kind of the low frequency weight room work, and then that contrast with high frequency, it brings me back to, I mean, I've been really immersed in that, you know, sport world lately and, and the DB hammer and factorization where you basically go from that lower uh, frequency to high frequency where when I was in high school. So I was thinking about this, like when I was in high school, the highest I jumped was uh, I got my finger or my, my hand like a couple inches above the top of the square of a basketball hoop. So it was like 11.6, 11.7, and that was – so at 6 foot or 6.1, that was like, a, I don't know, like 40-something. 40, 40 but I, I remember – I it's funny how my mind works. Like I just remember this stuff like really well. I, I had been lifting like I did in the fall. I did typical – we did Husker Power Strength and Conditioning. So it was like, you know, squat, squat twice a week, deadlift twice a week. But my own mind, I kind of like only treated one of those days like – like a good one because I didn't feel like I should lift that much. And then when the strength coach wasn't looking on the other day, I would just do lightweight. But um, and then <laughs> and then once I got to the season, like I wasn't lifting as much. And I remember there was a two or three week stretch where I really wasn't lifting. But every day in practice, I mean, this was before my big jump, we were doing like he was just killing us with wind sprints, not like conditioning, but like just riling us up, like com having us compete like suicides against each other as fast as we possibly could. And it was literally almost every day of practice, I remember. And so there was your, your, your high frequency. And after about two weeks of that, um, and I had kind of gotten away from weights, I just was exploding off the ground. I mean, it was insane. And yeah, I, 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 I always reference that a little bit when I think of, and I know of great coaches who will, you know, like, like typical, maybe three day a week and then drop to four or five days with a lower intensity each day. And it also makes me think in the, it was in one of those Buchenholz or D.B. Hammer books. I don't remember which one, but it was talking about um, 
like you get to a point where like weightlifting is almost like a super strong raw neural signal but the best athletes have a better sensitivity on almost like the tissue level like on the 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 peripheral level and and to really like hone that you need to it's almost like yeah you need more of that just specific high frequency it's not overcomplicated right like you just said it doesn't have to be overcomplicated but Anyways, I go yeah, off forever, and, but you really got my you really got my wheels turning when you were mentioning the frequency <laughs> thing because I yeah, I've been thinking about that myself a lot. Yeah, and there were I mean, there's actually as you as you spoke, there were a couple other things that came to mind that I'm now remembering that um, were interesting. So like, you know, there's there's kind of a common idea that if we improve the ten and we get that ten down, then in the forty we're gonna be golden, right? It's like you know that first ten yards is everything. Um, but it was interesting that I was tracking tens every day we were on the field and I saw the tens getting better, but initially forties weren't improving that much. And the forties were all the tens that they ran during their forties or during their longer sprints were always slower than the tens that they were running when it was just like, Hey, we're timing a 10. So what I realized is that guys were changing their running strategy to improve the 10 because you can you can run with pretty crappy mechanics and just lean and quote unquote stay low and force yourself to get through that timing gate and run a better 10 but that doesn't set you up for a better 30 and 40 right and so i began to kind of have to have a conversation with guys like hey when you run these 10s the intent needs to be you're going to think like you're running the rest of the drill as well because I, I want you practicing to get better at the 40, right? I want you practicing to get better at that longer sprint so you can time well. I'm not interested necessarily on just your 10 alone. You know what I mean? Because even if a coach cares about your 10-yard split, you're not going to run the 10 by itself. You're going to run the 10-yard split in the, in the confines of the 40. So that was an interesting thing that I had not even thought of going forward because I've, I've read a lot of information from combine, you know, coaches who are like the 10, the 10, the 10. And so, you know, we worked tens like crazy and we timed tens so that we had a number. Um, and it's not that I wouldn't time them as much because I think that also allowed me to auto regulate training. Um, and there were a couple of times where I pulled guys out and actually sent them home, which I was very happy I did because they were tanking in their numbers. And it was very indicative of like, the fatigue level, there's something wrong here and we need to allow you to rest. So those numbers were important, but in terms of athletes chain their strategy, I think coaches in our industry, especially those who may not have like a significant track and field background and may not realize that. I think we have to be careful if we're trying to translate our abilities to a longer sprint, teaching athletes how to uh, make it one continuous building effort as opposed to some sort of like short acceleration and then something magical happens and now I'm in top speed. You know what I mean? So I think that was an interesting thing for me to realize from watching them day in and day out that they were trying to beat the test uh, and they were finding ways to do it really effectively, but it was compromising their technical ability to set up the rest of the run. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. No, right on. I, I've been thinking about that a lot myself. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm 35 now. I still train speed, even myself all the time, just to try to kind of almost unlock, like the more I talk to a Darian bar too, the more I realize like there's all these pieces of acceleration in the, in the timing and the, and the, the patterning and the coordination and how one step might be subtly different and where your arms should be that I'm still trying to figure so much of that out. And 
yeah, like the like what you just said with that ten, and, and something I'm still trying to wrap my head around is the balance between coming out of that three point sprinting versus the patience. Like, what is that patience level? And I know that I'm talking with great coaches on the combine. It's like sometimes the biggest thing to get these football players to run a forty is just to learn patience, you know, and not spin your wheels as much like you probably do in the game. And um, yeah, just the, I remember I've seen even like videos with that ten of like a very prominent coach who I, I actually have a lot of respect for. Um, his guys were doing a 10 yard. He had a video of his guys doing 10 yard work. And I think it was resisted work. And this guy ran, I guess, a PR and you watch him doing his head is like down in a down position, like spinning his wheels. You know, it's just to get that 10. And, but if this was unweighed in a 40, it would be a little different story. And, and maybe the great athletes can make that conversion or if they know how to make that conversion, Anyways, you're totally right. It's it's a totally different skill, especially if you're so competitive and and which we all should be. But, you know, and you're locked into that drill without the context. I think it's a great, um, very important point. Totally. Um, Cool, man. Hey. um, All right. So uh, with the combine in mind and sprinting in mind, uh, I wanted to get into and this is the more PRI seminars I go to. I'm see you've gone to a lot. I've gone to just enough to be dangerous. And, you know, I haven't gotten it. I mean, I, I think it's talking to guys like you really helped me to put it all in perspective. And the more I go to, the more I learn, obviously, and much respect for PRI. But in terms of PRI and sprint training, um, what I'm really interested in is how the two principles um, relate and how they differ. And I guess before I fully ask this question, I should preface with PRI, postural restoration, um, the idea of proper joint alignment versus say sprinting where you're obviously a little bit anterior tilted chest is forward right like versus a a more neutral coming it back to neutral um and and i probably could go into the pri forever i guess i uh, people have hopefully listened to the show enough to um know a little bit of the pri world and i'll i'll make a little um note of this in the pre-roll but in terms of if we're looking at the thorax and the rib cage uh how what 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 do you look at from this perspective to help an athlete get faster? So when you're looking at the thorax and rib cage of an athlete and they're sprinting, are there any considerations you make that um, will tie in to help them be a faster athlete? Yeah. So this is a, this is a great question. Um, and my answer might surprise some people a little bit because it's going to be relatively simple, um, at least in my mind. But, you know, the first step, and this is something that I actually – I was a friend of mine took uh, USA track and field level one this year and he was showing me through the book and he's like, yo, check this out. And basically it was talking about how too much anterior tilt and too much rib cage flare up in the front, like losing that position and extending too much will decrease the ability to execute proper sprint mechanics. And I'm like, okay, so track and field coaches have appreciated this for the longest conceivable time. I mean, Charlie Francis was talking about this, you know, a long time ago, how if you're if you're too far forward, if you're too anteriorly tilted, rib cage is too far up, you're going to have increased backside mechanics. You're going to have increased ground contact times. You're going to have a situation where you can't impart as much force to the ground effectively as if you are being able to execute those frontside mechanics that we're looking for, right? And I'm, I'm not like a frontside versus backside guy. You need both to be optimal, right? But we do know that if you can't get your hip into a decent degree of flexion to then strike the ground aggressively, and if that forces you to take a much longer ground contact and you're constantly almost falling forward as opposed to propelling forward and up, 
then you're going to be slower than you could be, right? And you're also going to put yourself at risk for injury. So step one is you need to have some semblance of sagittal plane control. And this is not, um, you know, only a concept that PRI talks about. This is a concept that's been known for a long time throughout track and field. It's like we need to get sagittal plane first. And that doesn't mean that when you're sprinting, you need to be, quote unquote, neutral on the table, like able to adduct your hips perfectly because we know that a lot of sprinters are not going to be that but if it's so far out of control when they go to execute that sprint and their strategy is so extension dominated then they're not going to be able to demonstrate the the mechanics you're trying to get them to give you right and a lot of these drills we talking about and a lot of the technical cues we give we're trying to encourage front side mechanics we're trying to encourage striking the ground actively and having um, you know, a really powerful whip from the hip if we're talking about top end speed or a punch of the ground if we're talking about acceleration. You're not going to be able to execute that if you're so extended, right, that you are and kind of the way we can look at it is if I'm anteriorly tilted at the pelvis, then I'm going to already begin in a position of hip flexion. And the last podcast we did, we talked about kind of the elevator analogy and you know, getting on the third floor of a 10 floor elevator and asking it to go up 10 floors, I'm out of room. It's not going to happen. And so I'm constantly going to be spinning my wheels, spending more time on the ground and not imparting much force. So sagittal plane is key. And you mentioned the rib cage. You can't separate those two things, right? So from a thorax and a pelvis position, I need both of those things interacting well at all times. Otherwise, I'm, I'm not going to get what I'm looking for, right? Because they're so it they're so intertwined that we need to address both right and so i had a you know i'll give you an example i had a fast athlete from stony brook this year um who man this this dude could fly and you could see it coming in like just he was a he was a ferrari like his nervous system was just tuned up he was going to move but the problem is i mean he looked like sonic the hedgehog when he went to run like his feet were behind him he's spinning his wheels to go anywhere um and he's so extended that he would come in and say like I can't run because my calves feel like somebody's taking a blowtorch to them and my back feels like it's just lit up. And so, you know, I couldn't even train this guy until we addressed some semblance of sagittal plane control. And it was likely that we weren't going to hit perfect neutrality, but I needed to teach this guy to, to bring his rib cage back in space a little bit. And I needed to teach this guy to take an incredibly anteriorly rotated pelvis and bring it back a little bit so that he was then able to execute the mechanics that we were looking for a little bit more effectively. So that's that's sagittal plane. The other end of it is the the dominant right lateralization that PRI talks about, right? And we know that um, from a basic perspective, human be beings are asymmetrical, right? We have a the really big one is a liver on the right. We have a motor cortex on the left that's dominant for motor control on the right. And it's also just dominant for motor control in general. Um, and just a little aside, people say that PRI is not evidence-based. There is a whole lot of evidence in science that talks about asymmetry and talks about right lateralization of organisms that are not human. Um, and it's, it's, pretty, it's, it's pretty well known. So that understanding, when we look at sprint mechanics now, starts to explain some of the things that we might see. And so the dominant pattern that I've noticed is that um, people cannot push off their right leg, right? So you, we talk about create, especially in acceleration, right? We talk about hip separation. 
We talk about being able to create this piston-like action of the legs. We talk about being able to actively strike down and back into the ground. Um, and we talk about a longer arm action that's taking place during acceleration because of the slightly longer ground contact times. Well, I was actually watching an athlete sprint the other day who I was working with, and you could just see that she gets this big, beautiful push off of that left side with this great hip separation. That right arm goes way back behind her. Left hand is coming up in front of the face. It, it looks great. But then when she goes to push off of her right leg, her left arm doesn't get back behind her at all. Her right hand and her right arm get like stuck to her side. They don't come forward at all. She gets less hip flexion on that left side. And so she gets a much shorter projection when she's pushing off of her right leg. And it, when you watch it, it looks crazy because you just see this right chicken wing going flying back behind her. And so I was talking to a friend of mine and we were just discussing what really is the root cause of that. And I think in a lot of cases, it's, again, the dominant right lateralization, which sticks us into right stance phase of gait and doesn't allow the person to then express swing phase of gait on the right side and stance phase on the left side. And so, you know, there's a lot of things that we need. And this is a this is a frontal plane consideration, right? So a lot of people think like, all right, you know, sprinting is a sagittal plane activity. I'm going forward the whole time. There's a, you know, there's a triplanar nature to everything, but I think the frontal plane is incredibly important when it comes to sprinting. I need to be able to take my center of mass and shift it evenly from one side to the other if I want to get effective mechanics on both sides. So what I'm looking at then is I need to have the ability to push off of, so abduct and externally rotate a femur and a hemipelvis, and I also need to be able to side bend in the frontal plane at the thorax as I push off of the contralateral side. So if I'm trying to push off my right leg, I need my left hemipelvis to move up in space, and I need my rib cage to move down, essentially closing off that left side. And I need to be able to internally rotate and adduct that left femur as it's going through swing phase. So sprinting is a little different than walking gait because of the short contacts. I'm going to be seeing a little bit of a reversal of swing and stance at certain points. So I need to be able to do that, and then I need to be able to express the arm action that I'm looking for. And so you know, we can go into what muscles we need or, or things like that. And the primary ones in the frontal plane, I'm going to need left abs. I'm going to need left IC adductor. I'm going to need right posterior glute medius. And I'm going to need to, maybe the most important one, I'm going to need to be able to move air. Because if I essentially have an, a balloon of air in my left chest wall, I'm never going to create that frontal plane thorax action. So you mentioned the ribs. If I can't move my ribs by getting air out of the left, and inflating the right side, the uh, right apical wall, I'm not going to be able to move the thorax in any plane other than the sagittal. I'm gonna be stuck in that pattern. So moving air is critical to then being able to create that seesaw action in the frontal plane during sprinting. Now, this is where it gets simple though. I don't usually spend a lot of time with these athletes going through PRI correctives. I simply coach sprinting, right? And I think sometimes if you're able to coach good mechanics and you train properly, you can clean these things up. 
And so my strategy with this athlete who's having this major asymmetrical arm action where her right arm is going way behind her and her left arm is not even clearing her body so that if I film her from the side, I can't even see her left arm when it goes back. And she ends up with that, uh, that inability to get off her right leg, but that big push off the left leg. I'm going to work with her on cueing a more symmetrical arm action. And by driving that right arm forward, and this is something that Derek Hansen talks a lot about, using that right arm coming forward in space to try to drive a greater push off of the right leg and a greater swing action on the left leg. And as somebody who's, my me personally, when I sprint, I demonstrate the same pattern, a very asymmetrical arm action and asymmetrical push. When I have worked on really accentuating that right arm punch up and forward with good front side arm mechanics, all of a sudden now my hips and my thorax clean up a little bit better and I'm able to demonstrate a greater projection off of that right side. Um, and we can actually test this using like a four jump or like an RSI on one leg. You'll see people who get a really short ground contact time and a good four jump on their left leg. But on their right leg, the ground contact times are significantly longer. And it's just another way to kind of affirm this. And then the question is, how do I teach that? How do I coach that? And I think the biggest thing for me is before we go to all those PRI activities, and I'll use them in the warm-up to try to give them some more competency on this stuff, but I'm going to try to just cue and coach sprinting effectively and allow that to clean up the mechanics just with an appreciation for why they might be occurring. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned that I think was really interesting was not being able to get air out of uh, one side. And sometimes if you watch like, um, uh, I know for sure in track and field when you're spiked in, well, I guess a 40-yard dash you're spiked in as well. You see it too, but like athletes who kind of shoot out to the side, you know, they, they lateralize a little bit. And I wonder how much of that is due to not being able to get air out of that left side. Because you're supposed to exhale... You're supposed to have your ribs down in acceleration, like you were saying, actually, and, and hopefully we can talk about that too. But now going back, like you know, I've I've worked with athletes who have done that, and I kind of wish I could go back in time and and say, hey, let's. This is before the PRI. I knew much about PRI, or even obviously this conversation, and I wish I could say, hey, let's let's check this um, AIC and and let's see if this could might be a factor. I, I wonder how much do you think that plays a role in that that side to side swing in the run? I think it's I think it's pretty important. Um, you know, in this case, this is mechanical, right? There's a lot about PRI in terms of the nervous system, but, um, in terms of airflow, if you, as I said, if you have a balloon in your left chest wall full of air that you can't get out because we know that that left, um, hemidiaphragm is in a short contracted state with a very inflated left lung. If I can't get air out of that side, then I'm essentially being pushed to the right. And I'm not going to be able to get myself back to the left because there is a mechanical essentially stop keeping me from being able to demonstrate the movement competency I need. So I need to be able to move air out of that left chest wall and into that right chest wall, right? So that's, that's important. And what you'll see is you'll see a lot of people compensate around that in different ways. And in some cases, you'll see guys who will take that inability to actually execute a left side bend and a left hemipelvis moving up in space, and they'll just lean their whole body over to the left like they're about to fall over because they're trying so hard to get off the right and get to the left effectively, but they can't do it in a, in a, a pure manner, right, in a way that would execute the same mechanics. 
So it's it's important. That being said, I've seen a lot of fast people who can still execute good sprinting mechanics who can't necessarily move air in and out of both chest walls effectively, right? And so it's not it's something that we need to appreciate and we need to work on and we need to keep in check, but I'm a believer again that with an appreciation of the lens that PRI gives us, if we coach movement effectively, if we train effectively and intelligently and we do things well, a lot of these things clean themselves up. And so I think a good sprint coach without even having a PRI background can affect these mechanics just by manipulating things like arm action or manipulating the cueing you give to create the hip separation, right? And that can go a long way. And I think the arms in that case are a big one because arms are going to reflect what the thorax is doing. And we know that in PRI, there's a lot of right arm reaching, right? There's a lot of left arm reaching. There's a lot of reaching activities. So if I take that same concept and I apply it to the coaching of arm action where I'm telling you to punch up and through like you're giving somebody an uppercut and I can actually get a little bit more of a frontside mechanic on that right side and a little bit more of a backside mechanic on the left side where I'm creating gr a greater arm split, I think in a lot of ways that can drive a more effective uh, force application to the ground off of that right leg to propel me through space, whereas a lot of people struggle with that. So definitely important to know, and the and the airflow is, is a major component of why we're right lateralized, but I think that uh, good mechanics can can really go a long way to improving that. Yeah, that's a, I like that answer. And, and um, yeah, you definitely see if people are swerving, it's almost always out to the right. It makes sense. But I also like what you said because part of my brain goes, oh, shoot, if you do that, well, let's get you on the wall and do wall breathing in the left hamstring and feel this and that. But I'm like, after talking, after going to Pat's seminar, because I went to Rethinking the big, big Patterns in August, and one of the things I was talking about Pat with was like, and even the last podcast I did is like, I don't really want to bring up your weakness unless I absolutely have to. Like, if you can fix this without me saying something, then awesome. Like, that's better than than saying, okay, well, this is off and this isn't like dysfunctional, quote unquote, and, and you're not doing this and let's get you on the wall or let's get you reset. If you, if an athlete, a good athlete can do it, then they can do it. Like, um, I think that's, that's important. Um, and, and not overcomplicating things, right, too, because the simplest answer exactly. is the best one. Yeah. Exactly. And if I if I can avoid regressing you all the way down to, like, laying on the floor and not moving, especially <laughs> during a sprint session, it's, you know, that's a good thing, right? So So take the smallest regression we can, and let's see if we can coach it first. Let's see if I can change the environment first. Let's see if I can change the task first. Maybe I'm doing a resisted sprint which allows them a little bit more time to feel what I'm asking them to do, right? Like I'm asking them to make an alteration to their arm action, right? Maybe I'm asking them to push a little longer through one side, or I'm asking them to drive that right hand up in front of their face. And at sprinting speeds, they can't do that yet. It's too quick, right? It's too reflexive. They don't have time. So maybe I slow them down a little bit by using resistance, and now they have the time to feel that. And now they have the ability to feel that. And then I put them back into the drill and I continue to cue that. And now it cleans itself up. And I didn't need to go all the way back to step one. That doesn't mean I'm not going to use that at some point, right, during a corrective movement session or a regeneration session or at the beginning of the workout to try to get them to understand the movement of air and the movement of ribs and the control of their pelvis. But I think in the context of a session, the less we can regress, the better. 
And we got to try to coach it first before we take them out of the drill totally. Um, and I think that's something that good coaches have been doing for a really long time. Oh, yeah, right on. Um, something I, I like, too, that I mean, this makes all the sense in the world. And it's I think it's super important, maybe not as much for the 10. I'm not entirely sure, but for sure for the 40 and absolutely damn sure for the 100 meters and track folks is is um, what you mentioned about if the ribs are flaring out in those first few steps, you're not going to get front side. And something I've been talking a lot about with the Darian Bar about, and I, I'm definitely a firm believer in this, is the high knee driving action is more important in those first few steps than it is when you're actually full upright running. Just because a high knee when you're full upright running takes a little bit too long to put back down. Um, and some athletes do, some athletes don't. But but if you can't do that in acceleration, and it definitely makes sense that if it's, and maybe good track coaches just correct it with the breathing drills, like get a good strong exhale in the first 20, like you see that in track and field, exhale the first 20, and maybe that can clean it up. Maybe that can help you. Um but I don't, for some reason, which is funny because I've been through the PRI, I've talked to you and, <laughs> and Pat and, and, and been through this, but like maybe I just never put two and two together exactly like that till now, but that how important it is to get front side and acceleration very driven with the rib cage mechanics and the breathing. And I guess whatever the simplest solution you can use to get there is certainly the best. Exactly. Like if I can, if I can cue an arm or I can cue a leg, you know, a thigh punch or drive a knee for like you're breaking out glass again you know we have to appreciate that appendages are going to reflect the action of the rib cage and the pelvis right if i reach a right knee forward i'm going to be anteriorly tilting externally rotating and abducting that right hemipelvis right and same thing with a right arm right if i if i drive that right arm reach like we might use in a pri activity i'm using right serratus to drive frontal plane action to the left to allow my left abs to pick up leverage, which will then give me a left ZOA and allow me to get air out of the left side and then take a breath into the right side while my serratus also externally rotates my right upper ribs to expand the apical right wall. And so like all of that is very complicated PRI type concepts that you have to go to a course to learn or you can just cue that right arm front side action, and a lot of times it helps to clean things up, right? And you may not necessarily know exactly why, but it makes sense because you're taking advantage of that alternating reciprocal function of gait, and you're allowing for a greater push off of the lower body, and you're allowing for greater, greater frontal plane and transverse plane rotation of the trunk, which we all know you need to execute good sprinting mechanics. It's a symphony, it's a symphony of the entire body. And sometimes just by cleaning up or giving a cue that accentuates one part of that, like a, like a front side arm action, can make a drastic change to how the athlete organizes and executes every part of the sprinting movement. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, a, it's definitely a beautiful thing how the body can kind of can sort and solve those problems of itself. Um, I was going to ask you too, and this was cool with the RSI because I've always seen this. And well, you mentioned this and it got me thinking you're saying an athlete isn't as good off their right foot. And for some reason, I think of being in stance as it's almost like, it's like your pistol squat leg, like, like your right leg is like your pistol squat leg, but then it's not as good in the four jump. So um, it, it's almost like the left leg has better finishing or extension power and the right leg has better. I, I always trying to figure, can you exp explain or clarify a little bit of that? How, like what part of the push does each leg kind of tend to do better at? Is it the right leg more of the rear foot or I, how does that exactly work? Um, so if you, 
if you think about um, what what kind of we know about PRI in terms of the left anterior interior chain being facilitated um, and the right one being inhibited, the left AIC, that chain of muscles that PRI talks about so much, is your swing phase chain. Okay, your right leg therefore is stuck in stance phase because we are we are alternating, right, and we are reciprocal alternating beings. So essentially, what's that? What that means is whatever I'm doing on one leg, I'm doing the opposite on the other leg. And so we know that you know for a number of reasons we are biased into right stance phase of gait. So I'm really good at being on my right leg. I'm really good at being there and and being able to hold stance phase on the right side. I'm also really good at getting off of my left leg, right? Because uh, that anterior interior chain is facilitated as well. If we get up into the thorax, right? I'm left trunk rotated. I have a lot of air in my left. Uh, apical chest wall, and that is pushing me, literally pushing me in the frontal plane to the right, as well as rotating me back to the left, right? So for all those reasons, I'm awesome at being on that right side, and I'm really not all that good at being on that left side. So think of it this way. If we look at a four jump, right, that's about being able to quickly get off of whatever leg I'm on, or if it's bilateral, then it's just about being able to quickly use that elastic response to get off the ground. I'm really good at getting off of my left leg because my left leg is in a phase of gait called swing, right? So if I do a four jump, you're going to see a lot of athletes that are very bouncy and elastic and they just fly off that left side really effectively. But then when you watch them do it on their right side, it's almost like they're stuck in mud every time they hit the ground because they can't get their center of mass back off of the right leg to the left. So every time they hit the floor, they're right side bent. They're buried in right stance phase of gait. They have a right adductor that won't let go. They have a right medial hamstring that won't let go. They can't use a right posterior glute med to help push themselves in the frontal plane off of the right side to the left. And they can't get air out of that left chest wall, and they're buried over to the right. Hmm. So for all of those reasons, it's essentially like I'm good at being on that right leg. I'm stuck on that right leg. And when I go to have to do something that forces me to express the ability to get off of that right leg in the frontal plane, I'm not going to be particularly effective at it. So you're going to see those like short ground contacts, that really elastic, powerful response from a lot of athletes on the left side. But when you go to track it on the right, you're going to see guys who look like they're just like buried over there and stuck in mud. And if you can look at the numbers, but you can also film it and you really see the difference, the asymmetry side to side come out in something like a four jump. That's cool. I like how you, you explain that through the PRI lens, I think about, and how you would communicate it to an athlete probably would be whether or not they could do what you want without having to get there. But I think a lot about asymmetry in some of the world's like best 100-meter athletes, like Usain Bolt, Safa Powell, even, or you watch a lot of um, great 40 runs, and there is like a subtle asymmetry from side to side, or there is a, a toe drag as a result of like, and maybe this is like a level if you had like a pyramid and the bottom of the pyramid is the PRI and the internal cueing and everything. The way it plays you, the last resort to go to fix somebody. Um, the the kicking, like just the, like the, the reflex to kick a soccer ball, which leg do you plant off of? Which leg is your kick leg? Um, I think that plays a substantial role uh, in, in starting and which leg, you know, which leg is short and then which leg kicks long. Um, and I think that maybe that's almost like if, 
it's almost like a higher tier and then you know you the i don't know i'm, I'm just kind of rambling but that, that's something that i've been playing around with a lot learn from a darian bar and just so the subtle asymmetry in the start obviously like the girl you were talking about like couldn't even get her hand to you know couldn't even get her hand to neutral so that's like a totally different world but um kind of and it's it's her strategy right like that's that's what her brain recognizes she needs because it recognizes that it needs to be it it's it's over on that right side it likes that right side it wants mm -hmm. to stay on that right side and it doesn't really it's not able to get to the left right and so she does a great job of pushing off of that left and creating all of the mechanics associated with getting off of her left leg to get back to her right right and then when she's on her right leg she can't really get back to the left so all of the mechanics are going to reflect that and it's like what can i cue or what can i do that is going to encourage her to be able to create the biggest chain reaction that cleans all of them up with me saying the least, right? Yes. And there's another idea in, in coaching that is like, you know, asymmetry is bad. Asymmetry is terrible. And I'm, I'm definitely not a guy who's like asymmetry is like, just leave it alone. You know what I mean? Like we're all asymmetrical. Just screw it. We're going to be asymmetrical. Like there's a, there's a range of acceptance. If it's a massive asymmetry, we need to kind of corral it a little bit because that can be problematic. But uh, there's a guy named Ian McGilchrist who uh, who wrote a book, um, and I'm blanking on the name of it right now, but, but Pat Davidson has talked about it. Oh, it's called The Divided Brain and the Making of Western Civilization. And I listened to an interview with him, and he basically said there's an old adage in biology that asymmetry pays. Um, and through conversations with Pat and conversations with you know my friend Mike Camperini, uh, we've talked a lot about the fact that, you know, going a little deep here, asymmetry may have been the driver of the formation of the universe, right? Asymmetry, without it, there's equilibrium, right? And we just stay stagnant. Nothing changes. Asymmetry is what allows us to move through space. Asymmetry is what allows us to progress and change. Asymmetry is an incredibly important adaptive response. And if we look out th throughout the animal kingdom, and that's really what this book that Ian McGilchrist wrote was about, was asymmetry in the brain, asymmetry throughout the animal kingdom, and how in biology there is a reason for asymmetry. Asymmetry is a very adaptive thing that allows animals to thrive and allows organisms to thrive. Um, and so we need to appreciate that Asymmetry is not bad. Asymmetry is necessary. It is part of all of us. And um, we just have to know when enough is enough, right? And how to corral it enough that we can still perform effectively without uh, massive compensatory strategies that may lead to injury or problems. But I think we need to appreciate that, uh, you know, in PRI, asymmetry is not bad. They're not saying we should all be symmetrical, they're saying we should be. Some, we should be uh, symmetrically asymmetrical, if that makes sense. We need to control it. Yes, yeah. We need to appreciate it, but we need to not let it get out of hand. Uh, but we need to know that it's it's necessary and it's adaptive. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, it's like what Jake Schuster was saying with the force decks. It's like it's normal for an athlete to be asymmetrical. Like a long jumper's hamstring of their takeoff leg will be way stronger than the other side. It's just if they show up one day and that 
typical asymmetry is way out of whack. Like if you were usually 10% and now it's 15, it's like, okay, now, whoa. Like, but um, yep. yeah, learning like the body is like the yin and the yang or like anything you can, I always like anything you could take into a universal principle, right? Like anything you can pull out of life and put in coaching, that's like a double like bonus points moment because it's like more universal. But like the idea that one side of the body gives and the other takes, like, and you apply that to the start or a jump or a sprint. As long as it's not, you know, too crazy, right? As long as it's not injurious, as long as it fits with the high performance model that you see in the elites, um, I think it's rad. And uh, it's just cool. I almost feel like you could make like a pyramid, right? Like, like what to coach and when. This would be a cool article, right? Maybe I'll have to bounce some ideas off you. But like the top of the pyramid is just let the athlete go. Don't say anything, right? And then, then it's like, okay, here's some external cues or some here's something to feel that's not related to pri yet or internal or anything wrong with you <laughs> and then you could go farther and farther down till you maybe finally get into internal queuing and the pri stuff for somebody who absolutely needs it you you keep swinging off to the right and i can't figure it out so so let's go do this for you know before practice but like dan john said like you don't bust out the foam roller when you have max squat day you know like you you don't want to put those two things together in the same piece like you kind of mentioned before and you you hit on a couple really important things there number well number one I'm lucky in that I have PTs right across the room from me, right? So I don't have to always be the guy who's spending all the time working internal cueing, PRI activities, or mobility activity, whatever we want to call them at this point. Um, movement, uh, let's see, I don't even like corrective anymore, but some sort, we're trying to implement a new strategy or a, mo a new motor control strategy, or we're trying to open up a window of movement opportunity for this athlete. I don't always have to be that guy because that is what the PTs do well and it's part of what they do in terms of the time of things. So there's a symbiotic relationship there that allows me to focus on the coaching end of things and the technical execution and how I can affect movement from that way while maybe they're spending a little more time saying like, hey, here's, here's the here, – let's, let's slow things down. Let's take you out of a dynamic environment. Let's allow your system to take the threat perception off and really learn what we're asking you to learn. Uh, because I think when you try to do everything, you end up losing a little bit, you know what I mean? And, and it's important for me to have that knowledge, but it's also important for me to say the context of the situation dictates that the PT is gonna be able to do this a lot more effectively than I can, because they get a lot more time for it. At the same time, what you hit on there is huge. In terms of asymmetry, it's important to know the bandwidth, as, um, as, as many coaches would say, you, you have to know the bandwidth of the asymmetry that the person usually presents with, right? A little asymmetry is okay, and, and even you know substantial asymmetry is okay in some athletes if it's relatively consistent, right? If one day they show up, as you said, and it's way outside of the realm of what it's been, that's a huge red flag, and that's something you have to look at as a coach. But just to say that any asymmetry is a problem is not necessarily the case. There are some athletes who present with you know, massive asymmetries all the time and they're totally fine, right? They're able to load effectively and that asymmetry, and I mean, throwers are a perfect example of this, that asymmetry allows them to excel at their sport and to try to take that away from them would be at best a waste of time, at worst, possibly her performance. So I think, again, we have to keep it within, we, within a certain bandwidth and we have to monitor it and know that it's not, getting outside of what we deem acceptable for that person because just like an acute to chronic workload or just like uh, monitoring readiness right maybe that's your readiness tracker 
you see that guy come in and that asymmetry is way worse. That's a big red, big red flag. And maybe you have to alter your program or maybe you have to say like the fatigue is mounting. The stress is mounting. This is an expression of a system that's unable to adapt to the stress that's being put on it right now. And that's your marker. So I think, again, that just comes back to, to really good coaching. And, and Dan, Dan Pfaff has, uh, has talked about that a lot. Right. Just using a bandwidth and appreciating the bandwidth for each individual athlete um, and what it means when they're outside of that. Yeah, I like that with the the individual bandwidth is is so huge. I want to wrap this up a little bit and it it kind of stinks. I wanted to get to the isometrics and the lactate. But of course, maybe we'll fully appreciate that after your half marathon is complete. And maybe there'll be a new revelation even while that you're running that that we can uh, talk about in future episodes. But um, just to kind of complete the full circle of this PRI based talk is uh, and speed is is what's your take on impingement based strategies in lifting versus sport movement? I guess the biggest thing that I think about this a lot is like an athlete who impinges in the, when they squat versus well when they're upright running they're there's going to be a little bit of that impingement they're a little bit rounded they're a little bit anteriorly tilted so um what's your your thoughts on like on that and balance and maybe this is like the health performance spectrum too i don't know um just quick thoughts on that little dichotomy so i i know i know what you're saying but i want to clarify just a little bit um impingement right is when we talk about PRI's definition of impingement or in general what impingement really is, um, it's essentially in the context of biomechanics when two structures are coming closer together, Mm -hmm. right? And so when we look at impingement, it's when two bones are coming closer together. That's all impingement is in this case, right? And so we have to appreciate what is the context of the impingement And what is the task that I need the athlete to do? So look at it from this perspective. Cutting, sprinting, jumping off one leg, all involve impingement on one side of the body and instability on the other, right? Anytime we walk, we are impinging on one side and becoming more unstable on another. Stance phase of gait, when I have essentially a a rib cage coming close to an ilium, right? Because in the frontal plane, I'm side bent to the right a little bit in the PRI kind of uh, pattern, right? So if I have that rib cage in the frontal plane moving down towards my ilium and my ilium moving up towards my rib cage, that is impingement on the right side of my body, right? Same thing with the acetabulum and the femur. And the inverse is true on the left, right? I have a left rib cage that is further away from my left ilium, and I have a femur that is unstable or more unstable because it's moving away from the acetabulum in certain planes of motion, right? And so what PRI is essentially saying is we need to alternate between instability and impingement on both sides. And we need to be able to create both, right? So impingement is not a bad thing. And it's also not a thing that only occurs in situations where we feel like a pinch or where we have like a uh, front to back impingement, which I'll talk about in a second. So anytime we sprint, cut, change directions, I need to be able to impinge on one side and become more unstable on the other. And back to our sprinting discussion, people cannot become unstable on the right side they are impinged on the right side and they can't get out of that and on the inverse they need to be able to impinge on the left 
because they're in a situation where they're too unstable. Right? And this comes from an actual course in PRI called impingement and instability. But we, we need to appreciate that impingement is not a bad thing. It's a necessary part of movement. So with that in mind, um, if we look at if we look at uh, lifting, like you kind of mentioned, right, we're often going to talk about an extension bias strategy in the weight room where we are impinging on the backside of our body and becoming more unstable on the front. That's the classic response. That's an extension strategy where the ribs are coming up, pelvis is going forward. We know that that locks us into the sagittal plane. It allows minimal frontal plane and transverse plane movement, right? Here's, the, here's where the health and performance continuum comes in. If I'm a power lifter and I'm trying to move weight, I am trying to just put more wheels on the bar, an impingement strategy, especially in competition, may be the best strategy where I am impinging on the backside of my body. Maybe that allows me to create a tremendous amount of stability where I can't move at all in the frontal and transverse plane. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to move in the transverse plane when I got 600 pounds on my back, right? That is not a good strategy. So I want to be locked in in the sagittal plane. And that may allow me to put a lot of force into the bar and really keep things very well controlled, right? Now, if you are an athlete or somebody interested in health, you may not want that backside impingement with that front side instability because that may put you in a situation where you are loading structures repeatedly in a disadvantageous position. You may also be in a situation there where you're cutting off of your, your natural range of motion because, again, we know that anterior pelvic tilt is hip flexion. So if I live in a massive degree of hip flexion and I try to squat and go into deeper hip flexion, I'm going to restrict my movement, right? And at the same time, it may not allow me to load, to maximize the length tension relationships of muscles and the ability to express joint range of motion that allows me to load tissues in a way that will optimally absorb and adapt to stress, right? So if I'm looking for athletic performance or health, I may not want to have such a massive impingement strategy on the posterior aspect of my body while the front is becoming more unstable. But if I'm a power lifter, that may be exactly what I want. Now when it comes to athletic performance on the field, as I just said, locking myself in the sagittal plane and impinging on the posterior aspect of my body where literally my vertebral bodies are coming closer together, if I do that and I try to make cuts, sprint, or change directions, I'm going to be locked in the sagittal plane as we just said. And I'm going to be restricted in my ability to move in the frontal and transverse planes. And we know that that's important for athletic performance. And there's a continuum of it, right? If I'm a sprinter, 100-meter sprinter, I don't need a ton of transverse and frontal plane movement, right? Frontal plane movement is important, as we just said, with mechanics. But at the same time, I don't need as much as if, um, let's say, a baseball player, a pitcher, right? That's a lot of rotation that is required of me on a regular basis. And I'm going to end up loading other structures unfavorably if I don't have that. At the same time, if I'm a soccer player and I go to cut or change directions, I need to be able to rotate and move in three planes of motion. Otherwise, I'm going to have problems. And now people will say, well, then how come we take so many athletes, we put them on the table, and they don't demonstrate sagittal plane competency? And where I'm kind of at with that is I need them to have enough control over it that they can effectively move, but I don't necessarily need them to be neutral before they go and do those things.
right? And so, again, coming back to the original point, I think we need to be able to teach athletes because we, we've all seen it. If somebody is super extended, they're going to get buried in their cuts. They're not going to get in and out of their cuts effectively. They may put their, their joints in compromising positions. So when I'm working with an athlete, I want to make sure that they're able to keep that within a bandwidth or, or within control so that it allows them to effectively shift and rotate and move in the frontal and transverse planes and express the joint actions and ranges of motion I need to um, affect the mechanics of sprinting that I'm trying to teach them. So I think for athletes, it's important to make sure that they can impinge and become unstable on both sides. They need to be able to keep things within a certain bandwidth depending on the goal of the weight room activity. So I don't want them always going into massive extension to perform a squat because the goal isn't just I need to put a ton of weight on the bar. The goal is how much force they, can they produce with control of a strategy that allows them to load their body in an effective way to absorb and adapt to stress. And in terms of health, same thing, right? The goal is hypertrophy. The goal is weight loss. The goal is body composition, aerobic fitness. I don't need them relying on a dominant extension strategy and a posterior impingement strategy because that may lead to unfavorable adaptations which don't support good health and wellness and movement quality and feeling good as well. So I think we can always train and get a training response within the pattern of making sure that people have a balance and are able to impinge on the front as well as the back and they're able to rotate. But at the same time, if optimal performance in a lifting activity where it's a sagittal plane dominant activity and I really don't want frontal and transverse plane movement, then yeah, I'm going to use a little bit more, a little bit more of a posterior impingement strategy, especially uh, especially during competition. Uh, but maybe during training, I don't, right? And and I think certain power lifters do this naturally. Like in their off season, maybe they're not uh, doing certain variations of squats or bench presses or deadlifts that they know are going to stress their back, right? And they may not even realize why, but they may not realize that the reason their back is always shot when their competition phase comes around is because they're moving heavy loads all the time and they are locking themselves into that sagittal plane impingement strategy. So it's a it's a context-driven thing, but I think it's really important to understand what impingement is when we look at that question and then to appreciate, just like asymmetry, it's part of every movement we make in daily life, athletics, and in the weight room. And it's just about knowing what we need and, and then choosing the right strategy for that task. Yeah, it's good to know, like, you know, we yes, we do impinge. Like, you see here impinge, and you're like, oh, I should never do that. Like, it's good to know that's a part of normal movement. Um, one last thought just on what you said with like power lifters will go in even more extension in that competition in a similar vein. I've heard the, the best sprinters in a hundred in like, you know, a high championship meet will actually have worse knee recovery to the front. And I was like, maybe it's just that fight or flight has hyper, you know, overdrive of, of, um, extension, right? Like it just happens in that competition, but it's just cool to hear that. Um, anyways that's all the time i got for today justin man we could have gone on for hours um but hey after your marathon let's bring it back we'll, we'll talk about our second half i think this was a great episode so thanks for your time yeah thanks for having me man i'm, I'm excited to dive into some <laughs> of other other questions as well um i spent a lot of the summer looking into physiology and lactate and things like that so uh, let's definitely do this again and i'd love to really dive into some of those other questions you had
All right. Well, that wraps up another episode. Thanks for being with us today. Appreciate your listenership. And it's just so enjoyable being blessed by the, the brilliant coaches who have been on this podcast. I've learned a ton and I hope you have as well. If you enjoyed the show, please don't hesitate. Leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever you're listening to the show on. Would totally appreciate it. Also, don't forget to visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology, free lap timing system, K-Box, Gym Aware, uh, K-Box, or the flywheel you heard Justin talking about at the beginning of the show. They have such an amazing array of uh, sport performance technologies, so check out their shop, see what they got, and uh, you definitely won't be disappointed with their blog, customer service, or anything they have to offer. We'll see you guys next week. Have a good one.